So don't you like that little guy on the slide? I think he's pretty cute. It's about two inches long. He perfectly matches the color scheme of my slides, which is very vital when I look into animals. And he's filled with enough poison to kill 10 adult human beings. It's probably the deadliest animal on Earth. The good news, he only lives in South America. The bad news is he's not the only one in this room who's carrying around a lot of poison. I think, truth be told, we all are. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here, but have you ever had a loved one or a close friend or maybe even just a boss say something to you that was so hurtful that even years later you still remember the sting of it and you remember every word crystal clear? Now, have you ever been the person who said that to someone else? Well, science is giving us some insight as to why it is we feel the sting of words so intensely. The functional MRI uh, is a machine that allows us to see how the brain reacts in real time uh, to different things that happen. And in a post on psychology today, uh, Mark Waldman and Dr. Andrew Newberg wrote, if I were to put you into an fMRI scanner and flash the word no for less than a second, you'd see a sudden release of dozens of stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters. These chemicals immediately interrupt the functioning of your brain, impairing logic, reason, language processing, and communication. If you've ever said no to a small child, you know exactly what these guys are talking about. If you vocalize the negativity or even slightly frown when you say no, more stress chemicals will be released, not only in your brain, but in the listener's brain as well. The listener will experience increased anxiety and irritability. But negative words spoken in anger do even more damage. They send alarm messages through the brain, interfering with decision-making, and this increases a person's propensity to act irrationally. So you see, negative words have terrible power. They alter both the speaker and the listener. And yet, for many of us, we just can't seem to stop saying them, even when we try. So as we return to our mini-series on the book of James today, we're going to be seeing that this is a truth that he was well aware of long before anyone had an fMRI. And this week and next, we're going to walk through chapter 3 of James, and he begins with a brutal description of the impact and influence of our words. So if you would, turn with me to James chapter 3, verses 2 through 12. It'll also be up here on the screen. And James writes, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. 
For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So James here is speaking in his wonderfully clear and, and direct way about our words. The horrors of what we say and the outsized influence of our tongues. Now, as usual, as we've seen over the last, last few weeks, he doesn't pull any punches. In some of the most graphic words possible, he describes the tremendous potential for evil that we are carrying around in our mouths every minute of every day. Now, I have to confess, this is a very personal passage for me because this is my stronghold of sin more than any other. He could have been talking about lots of other things, and I would have been happy to have dealt with that. But he picked this one. He is talking to me. But based on what he says, I suspect he may be talking to some of you as well. And so I'm not just preaching to myself. If we take a moment and reflect on the swath that our words have cut through life, through our family or our friends, our classmates or our colleagues, or the world at large, we begin to realize, yeah, I think he might be talking to me. So let's begin to unpack this passage. Look a little more closely at what he says about this restless evil that we all carry around with us. And then see what the Bible has to say about how to tame it. Now it begins in verse 2 by noting, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And so he begins by laying out a fundamental truth here of life that that we all stumble in many ways. I mean, we all try pretty hard to do the right thing. I think most of us here try to do the right thing at home, and we try to do it at work. We try to do it at school, and we try to do it at church. We try to do it with our friends, and we try to do it with our families. And most of the time, we try and do it with strangers. But we don't always get it right, do we? No matter how hard we try, we still stumble. We make mistakes. We fall short of God's vision For us. Paul told the Romans, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So I suppose at least we're in good company here. We have to understand this is a universal truth. We all stumble. And not just occasionally, not just a little bit. We stumble in many ways. And if we don't accept this, then we're lying to ourselves. And really, at that point, the rest of this passage is going to be pointless for us. Because we're going to believe that we can fix the problem by just trying a little bit harder. Well, James proceeds on to describe a perfect person. Someone who never stumbles. Someone who never sins. And the key to that perfection is the control over what he or she says. Because if he or she never commits a sin in his or her speech, then James says that person is able to control their whole body. And he illustrates the outsized influence of the tongue by describing three 
large, powerful things that are controlled or affected by small things, right? He, he talks about a horse directed by its bit. He talks about a ship directed by its rudder. And he talks about a forest destroyed by a small fire. Fire here is, of course, a linking concept that we see throughout this passage. For James, it's clear that our words both reflect and drive our behavior. Science would now agree with James. It's only took them a couple of thousand years. That article about the fMRI makes it clear. Think of what it said. Our very thinking was affected by how, what we said and by how we said it. So I think if we reflect on our own lives, if we remember those times when our anger served only to feed more anger, when our negativity only fueled more dissatisfaction in our life, and when our, our criticality just made us more unhappy, then I think we can say that, yes, we have experienced this firsthand. So if we could just control our, our tongue, then we'd have a real shot at getting it right, a real shot at virtue, just like James's perfect man. But to understand how difficult this is, let's, to really appreciate it, let's go back and look at what James says about this enormous evil that we are able to commit with our words. Let's see and appreciate just how dangerous and out of control our tongues are. And so James continues on in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Going ahead a little, he says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So let's take a moment and let these words just soak in. A fire, a world of unrighteousness, staining our whole body, setting our whole life on fire. A restless evil full of deadly poison set on fire by hell. Do you believe this? Because James certainly does. And all you have to do, I think, is look around at the headlines today and say, it's as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. A quick glance at the headlines will, will show you stories of you know, celebrities who are fat-shamed, that's a new word in the last year or so, into you know, self-image problems because of Twitter comments. We see people cyberbullied into depression. We see reputations destroyed in an instant of uh, viral social media abuse. We see people driven to the point of suicide just through what people say and write online. That's deadly poison. Our culture is obsessed with sarcasm and criticism. They are, in my opinion, the intellectual currency of our time. Points are scored by the person who can, who can most quickly encapsulate a situation or a project, an idea, a meeting, or some other situation with a sarcastic comment. As an aside, I am awesome at this game. That is definitely one of my currencies at work. As a culture, our comedy is no longer driven by humorous or unlikely or odd situations, is it? It's, it's, created, it's driven by creating situations like that so that one of the characters can deliver a sarcastic one-liner that humiliates people. 
Criticality is the relentless force driving the 24-hour news and opinion cycle. It has been noted that we tend to see people who say negative things as being smarter than people who say positive things. There is verifiable evidence that if someone is told they're going to be lecturing a group of smart people, that they will start to say more negative things in their lecture so that they will be viewed as more intelligent. You see, sarcasm and criticality allow us to feel and appear smart when we don't actually have a better idea. But they come at a real price to real people. Now, if any of this resonates with you as it does with me, then spend some time in prayer this week and, and ask God to reveal to you, is there anyone out there that you know who has been burned by the hellfire of your tongue, who is suffering from your poison? And if so, you have to turn away. You have to repent. You have to ask forgiveness to make this right. Now, James continues in verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he's exploring here something that I don't know that I've ever spent a lot of time thinking about. But it's, it's a really odd situation if you think about it. And he's highlighting this. He's, as believers, we love to praise God. We are here son, this morning We're here most every Sunday morning faithfully praising God. And yet the other six and a half days of the week, how often are we saying things that tear down other people? People who James reminds us are made in God's image. Now, maybe we're not literally using profanity or calling down fire from heaven or wishing eternal damnation on somebody else. I could hope not. But... If we're trashing them, if we're insulting them, if we're gossiping about them or backbiting, it's the same thing. I'm reminded here of Matthew 5.22, where Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. How many times in the past week did you use a version of that on I-95 or Old Bridge Road? How many times have you said or thought negative and insulting things about another person, whether it's at work or at school or in the grocery line? How many times has it been directed at your spouse or your children? Each of these people, whether they're family or friends or complete strangers, is an image bearer of God, loved by him. And many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, we're cursing them. James's point is that it makes no sense to bless God, but curse his creation. It's unnatural to love him, but not love those whom he loves. He drives this home in verse 10 with his concluding appeal. My brothers, this ought not to be so. This is what he's been building to through the whole passage that these things don't make sense. It's as unnatural as a tree bearing the wrong kind of fruit or a a spring delivering both fresh, life-giving water and salty, life-destroying water. It goes against God's design for creation. But how many of us are doing it every single day? So we need to recognize that we all stumble in what we say. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's criticality. Maybe it's sarcasm or cynicism. Maybe it's a complaining spirit or negativity or gossip and backbiting. 
Maybe it's bullying, belittling, insulting, arguing, or cursing. I don't know what it is for you, but it's out there, isn't it? That temptation to stumble in many ways by what you say, because the tongue is a restless evil. So the question that naturally comes to mind is, why is it like that? If the tongue is so full of poison, what is the source of that poison? If we want to solve the problem, we need to address it at the source, because any other approach is just window dressing and superficial behavior modification. It's not going to last. We might temporarily drain the reservoir of poison, but it's just going to refill. Going back to my little frog at the beginning, I suppose we could pick him up and give him a good wipe down with a Clorox wipe, but it's not really going to solve the poison problem. If you want to solve the poison problem in that, you have to address the source, which is stop feeding him the bugs he eats that makes him poisonous. We, too, have a source that makes us poisonous. And, and what is that source? What is it that ignites the fire of hell in our tongue? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, 18 and 19, he says, well, what comes out of your mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So you see, we cannot drain the poison in our tongues without first dealing with the poison in our hearts. And as I've wrestled with this passage over the past month, this is the part that's hurt the most. Because before I got started, I was feeling like I was doing pretty good. Felt like, you know, God's done some good work in the last few years. And he has. I'm not not saying he hasn't. But as I survey the scorched earth left by my tongue, I'm forced to confront the fact that in my heart there's still a cesspool of sin. Sin that I've had to repent of and pray daily to avoid letting back in. And so if you recognize that you have a problem with your words, if you recognize them as a poisonous hellfire, then you have to accept that somewhere you're still harboring sin in your heart. And maybe it's easy to see and recognize, but for most of us it's going to be hard because God has done a transforming work on us, and he has cleared away most of our obvious sins. But we all have hidden strongholds, idols like control or comfort or security that find their expression in poisonous words whenever they are threatened. And so if you recognize the symptoms but don't know where your sin lies, spend time in prayer this week with God. Ask him to show you where the sin is, what the desires are, what the idols are that lurk inside you. It won't be fun, but he will be faithful. I can assure you of that. And it is vital if you wish to drain this reservoir of poison. Without recognizing the sin that produces the poison, there can be no permanent fix for the poison. So what are we to do with this restless evil in our mouths? Recognizing that we all stumble in in so many terrible ways and that we do it as an outgrowth of the sin that remains in our hearts. What are we going to do when James cries out, these things ought not to be so? Well, to answer that question, we first have to recognize what James says in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's not enough for us to recognize the restless evil we carry around. It's not enough to resolve to do better next time. Because believe me, I've tried. 
It might help for a little while, but it's not going to last. A restless evil will find an outlet. So there's no hope of controlling this by developing strong resolutions or good habits or applying self-help programs. If the key to perfection is controlling our words, then we need to clearly understand that there is no hope of achieving it on our own. But is there hope for draining this swamp of sin? Well, the good news is there is. The key to seeing how is to note that James said that no human being can tame the tongue. But as believers, we don't need to despair in this. Instead, we can rejoice that a power greater than our own wants to help us. As believers, we have access to God himself, and he can tame our tongue. The only thing that's going to change us is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ, Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But he didn't stop there. Through Jesus Christ, we are also transformed. Colossians 1, 21, 22 say, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And God's transforming power doesn't just stop with our salvation and our forgiveness of sins. He lives within us, seeking to change us, to conform us, to be like the only perfect man, the one who never stumbled, the one who always controlled his tongue, Jesus Christ. This conforming comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can you see it in those words? Because at last we've found the cure for restless evil. It's patience and joy. We found the cure for deadly poison. It's peace and gentleness. We found the cure for a world of unrighteousness. It's goodness and kindness. We found what extinguishes hellfire. It's love and faithfulness. We have found what tames the tongue. It is self-control given by the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't happen automatically because when we put our faith in Christ, we are saved immediately. Our sins are forgiven immediately. And the Holy Spirit comes to live within us immediately. But that does not make us stop sinning, does it? Didn't even make Paul stop sinning. Each day, we have to make the decision to let the Holy Spirit work on us. Do we let him transform us to be more like Christ? Paul tells us that to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit, we have to walk by the Spirit. That to live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. So if we want to drain the swamp of sin, we have to do the things to let the Spirit work within us. How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, it's a simple formula, really, but it requires daily discipline. We need to be reading God's Word every day that we can and really meditate on it, really let it work on us. Don't just knock it out and then move on. Let it go to work. We need to be in prayer just about every day that we can. We need to be talking to our Heavenly Father and listening to Him daily. We need to be asking God to show us our sins and to truly repent of them, 
turn away from them, to accept his forgiveness of them, to seek his help in not repeating them. We need to be worshiping him regularly. That's how we keep in step with the Spirit. Now, if we stumble and get out of step with the Spirit, the good news is the Spirit's still there. He's still walking, waiting for us to get back in step with him. Tomorrow's another day. That's how we experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, these disciplines seem so simple, but they are surprisingly hard to keep up with. The world tries to interfere, and the enemy opposes. But it is only by embracing our identity in Christ, by cultivating our daily relationship with God, by walking in step with this Holy Spirit, that we are transformed and conformed, that we receive the power to do what no human being can do, to tame the tongue, to drain its poison, to extinguish its hellfire, and to finally put the evil to rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our life. We thank you that you are always with us and that if we seek forgiveness, you will forgive us. That if we seek change, you will change us. Lord, you are faithful in all things, even when we are not. We ask that your word would work in a mighty way in our hearts in this coming days. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we close, if God's been speaking to you this week, or particularly if these words have spoken with you this morning, and you feel like you need to come forward to pray, or to ask forgiveness for things that you've said, or to get help forgiving things that have been said to you, or maybe to seek a change or make a commitment, please do so. Pastor Neil will be here to receive you.